1: I'm just pulling on the cap with my fingertip and seeing uh, if it kind of bounces back, like doinging it.
2: Today, we're rummaging in the undergrowth.
1: There's, we found a pale, a pale brown mushroom, and it's got quite a long, elegant stem with the cap sitting on top of it. And its stem is a little bit wonky, and you can see that the spores have fallen onto the stem. So that's created a natural spore print.
2: Plant pathologist Jassy Draculich will be showing us how fungi help wildlife in unexpected ways. And we'll be hearing the story of an unsung hero who helped introduce many of our favourite garden plants.
3: In fact, you might say that Chow was likely the most prolific botanical explorer of the early 20th century.
2: Plus, we'll be getting up close and personal with a garden visitor you'll know well, the earthworm. Recyclers, food to birds, superstars of our soil, RHS principal entomologist Andy Salisbury will be sharing some fascinating facts about these wiggly detritivores.
4: There is a giant earthworm and that can be over a metre long.
2: I'm Guy Barter and this is Gardening with the RHS. RHS. Let's get back to Jassy Dracula in Wisley's undergrowth. As a plant pathologist at RHS Garden Wisley, she's used to researching harmful fungal diseases, such as honey fungus. But today she's looking on the positive side. Wisley's gardeners and scientists are drawing attention to how certain fungi can support wildlife. So Jassie took us on a tour of some of the hotspots.
1: So there's fungi that provide food for wildlife so when we're thinking about invertebrate wildlife there's lots of different beetles that like to feed on fungi and so when we think about the handsome beetles also known as the false ladybirds their adults will feed on the mushrooms and then their larvae will develop inside the mushrooms and feed on like graze on the mycelium that's the network of threads that make up the kind of the main body of fungi compared to the ephemeral mushrooms that just come and go and then there's other invertebrates that will feed on spores, specifically. Some spores, in fact, won't germinate until they've been digested by something like an earthworm. And then there's also the sort of the habitat creation side of things. There's beetles who overwinter as adults inside of things like the collared earth star. This is one of the stomach fungi, so it creates like a kind of sack full of spores. And when all those spores are gone, that's just a nice little cave for some beetles to go and hang out in and take shelter over the winter time. And then... Fungi also live inside of dead wood and rot that down. And as they do so, they create a softer structure that other insects and mammals can come and live inside as well. So we are going to be putting in some new exhibitions in order to create some specifically like mushroom logs in and around the wildlife garden. These will be rotting down and recruiting biodiversity to come to them. So let me take you up around the wildlife garden and show you where we're going to be putting these fungi exhibits and let's have a look and see what other fungi are popping up. So, we found a pale brown mushroom and it's got quite a long, elegant stem with the cap sitting on top of it. I'm just pulling on the cap with my fingertip and seeing uh, if it kind of bounces back, like doinging it. seeing seeing how robust it is because the more tension in that stem that's going to indicate a stronger stem versus something that's quite brittle and would just sort of flop over and snap straight away. So yeah, we're walking um, over across the Wellbeing Garden to the other side of the hilltop building where there is an old hornbeam standing and at its base there is quite a large conch of a bracket fungus um, from the genus Ganoderma. Um, Now this whole genus, they rot the heartwood out of trees. Heartwood is is non-functional. It's like the old wood that used to be the sapwood from years ago. And yeah, it makes the tree much heavier. Heart rotted trees, they still live, they're still functional. But the, the really good benefit in terms of wildlife is this hollow that is created is full of loose material that detritivores can feed on. And then feed on each other. That lives in there. It's like a whole ecosystem just inside that rotted tree. And like the older the tree, get the more species that it can support. And so this this heart rot is something we want to flag as a kind of a driver of improving biodiversity. So the old hornbeam tree is still quite mighty. It's obviously it's lost a lot of its leaves now for winter but it's not up in the branches, it's right down at the base of the trunk where this large brown growth has emerged. It's about 30 centimetres across, about, probably about another 30 centimetres um, in depth, and it's sort of layers, like several layers, grown one after the other, year upon year, and the most recent growth is at the bottom, and it's got this sort of pale brown, kind of uh, spongy type layer. The best thing you can do for fungi is to introduce dead wood that still has its bark attached fresh dead wood and to allow it to rot down and that could be small branches make demarcating different areas in your garden adding in wood chips is also really great because different fungi thrive in different sizes of wood and also larger logs creating different sizes of habitats encourages different fungi to thrive and encourages different invertebrates to to interact with that as well and also when it comes to adding wood Try to be less sterile about it, you know. Consider making your raised bed out of logs instead of out of planks. Fungi often instill a lot of fear in the public. A lot of the reaction from most of our members when they have a photograph of a fungus in their garden, they're like, what is it, how do I get rid of it? Which our response is well there's very few things that are going to be growing in your garden as a mushroom and actually going to be causing any kind of harm pretty much everything else you'll be finding which is you know the vast majority of finds are going to be doing a huge amount of good and so we're trying to remove that fear get people to embrace sort of the benefit beneficial side of these things and to actually act to try and be a steward to encourage fungi in their gardens to try and encourage like a rich sort of soil environment with good fungi, good bacteria, which should be more resilient against things like pests and diseases.
2: Thanks, Jassy. One of my favourite fungi are puffballs. They can be cricket ball sized or great big things that are as big as a football. The big ones are actually edible. You can fry them in slabs with some butter. I admit they don't taste as much. The nice thing about puffballs is that as they mature, they literally puff. You give them a little tap with your toe, and out comes a puff of spores, like smoke, drifting away to start more puffballs and become part of the rich tapestry of nature. Now, Andy Salisbury is an entomologist, which means he studies insects. But he also knows a thing or two about another group of often helpful invertebrates.
4: So we're going to talk about worms, but what do we actually mean by worm? I mean, there's, there's many definitions. I'm going to assume, really, that today we're going to talk about earthworms, but worms can also mean things like the flatworms, which are not earthworms, they're platyhelminths. they're not segmented animals, mealworms, which are beetle larvae, eelworms or nematodes, which are a completely different class of animal.
2: Today, though, it's all about the earthworm.
4: They are segmented and they often have a saddle-like organ in the middle, a smooth area uh, somewhere down the animal, which is where the sexual organs are kept. They are basically a double-tubed animal. They have a a tubular gut that goes through the middle and are long, well, worm-like animals. Earthworms are vital to a healthy garden ecosystem. They're, They're vital to the healthy soil, which of course is vital for the health of our plants as well. Earthworms are known as detritivores. Generally, they feed on decomposing organic matter. And detritivores are recyclers. And when they're feeding on that decomposing organic matter, they eat it, they take in their own nutrients, and then basically what comes out of the back of earthworms is nice friable soil, a nice sort of loose soil, full of nutrients that helps our plants grow. And so they are vital. And also when they're burrowing through the soil, many earthworms also help with the soil structure. In the UK, there are about 30 different species of earthworm, and about 16 of those will occur in gardens. They all have slightly different habits. So there are some species, such as the tiger worms, which are more often found in big piles of rotting organic matter. So these are the worms you might find in your compost heap or in a big pile of leaf litter. And then there are some of the bigger lumbricus species, which, which live in permanent burrows. So these are ones you might find in less disturbed soil. They live in permanent burrows, coming up to the top, and pulling down leaf material into the soil and feeding on it there. And so all these earthworms have slightly different habits, and you'll get slightly different earthworms on different soils. Generally, though, there will be fewer on acidic or waterlogged soils. It's very difficult to actually sometimes put a number on how many earthworms you might find in a garden. There can be hundreds, if not thousands. Now, some of the rough estimates out there, that there can be more than 100 in a single square metre of soil. So, uh, you know, a good, healthy garden has a good population of earthworms in it. Worms are vital for the composting process. There are also sort of lots of creatures in there, but generally they seem to find their own ways into a garden and generally their numbers are in balance in a garden. So if you've got an open compost heap then earthworms should make their own way there. However if you're running a wormery or a completely enclosed system where earthworms can't get into it you can actually purchase some of the tiger worms for use in those systems, but generally in the open garden you shouldn't need to buy earthworms. And it just seems amazing to me that, that sometimes you can start a compost tape, even one of these big sort of TARDIS plastic things and fill it up with virgin matter, even though it's got a piece of concrete. Somehow the earthworms do manage to find their way in and it always surprises me how they get there. Not quite sure how they do it. Some people do come across earthworms in their lawns. Sometimes they produce worm casts which are, are little piles of soil. Now that, if you can collect it, is excellent soil and can be used as as uh, potting compost or very, very loose soil for planting plants. But it can smear and you can get other plants growing in the lawn. The advice here is try and tolerate it as much as possible. Try and remove it as much as possible. Try and just repair the lawn when that happens. It is something that unfortunately does happen in lawns sometimes. In a garden, earthworms will generally reach a sort of a balance sort of what's there, what's available to them. So, having a good amount of organic matter, not being too tidy in the garden, sort of leaving some of that leaf litter, leaving some of that dead plant material to rot down naturally can all help. As say earthworms are are one of the better known creatures for eating rotting organic matter, but there are many other creatures which will benefit from that as well. So it is essential to have a, a large amount of organic matter there to recycle for a healthy garden. They are amazing creatures and there's actually a society out there for earthworms called the Earthworms Society of Britain and, and Ireland and they have lots of information on their website about um, earthworms and what you can do about them, what they do and surveying them and there's been surveys but earthworms are vital to a healthy garden and it's not just what they do for soil structure sort of helping the nutrient recycling in your garden but also they are food for many other things sort of a, a lot of bird life such as blackbirds feed on them but there are also flies which feed on them many beetles hedgehogs of course rely on them so they are sort of the foundation to a healthy garden balanced ecosystem and healthy biodiversity in the garden
2: I love earthworms. When I'm digging, if I don't see any, I make a mental note to feed that bit of ground with some compost or manure. And if I see lots, I feel very satisfied, because where earthworms thrive, so will my plants. Thanks, Andy. The next time you're admiring a rhododendron or clematis or buddleia, think of Zhao Chen Zhang. Zhao isn't known in horticultural history despite working closely with prominent botanist George Forrest, who visited China to gather plants in the early 20th century. Zhao would have collected many of the specimens that Forrest is now credited of introducing to Western cultivation. Yvette Harvey, keeper of the herbarium at RHS Garden Wisley, and Leonie Patterson, archivist at the Royal Botanic Garden Edinburgh, wrote an article about Zhao for the Plant Review magazine. So to shine a light on his work, we spoke to them. Leone started by telling the popularised story of George Forrest.
5: It's often a very one-sided story that we tell. We obviously tell the story from Forrest's point of view, and we never really sort of tell it from the point of view of of the suppose, the disgruntled locals, I suppose, fed about with uh, interference from outside sources. So Forrest would have um, arrived in China in 1904 scouting out the area of Yunnan and working out where best to do his plant collecting in 1905. So in 1905 we find him on the Mekong River. He would have based himself, I suppose, where the Europeans had based themselves in China. So that, like places like missions and consulates. And the mission would have had a number of what Forest referred to as converts, so local people that would have converted to um the Catholic faith. And he was using these men to help him collect plants they would have had good knowledge of the plants they would have had good knowledge of the rivers and valleys and how to move around the region where they could go they also would have been able to go places that forest wouldn't have been able to go it was a very hostile area for westerners at the time it came to a head in I think, April of 1905 when local hunters just attacked the mission with the intention of just destroying it which is what they did him and the local missionaries had to escape under the cover of darkness and walk their way down the the Mekong Valley in the pitch dark with their converts. He soon found himself in a situation where they knew that they had hunters behind them and he knew that he had hunters in front of him on this this river valley and eventually they were cornered. The party had no choice but sort of split up and just um, it was every man for himself. Forrest ran towards the river down this mountain stream as it were. He turned the corner and found... That the men that had been hunting him coming the other way, armed to the teeth, and, and Forrest didn't have any choice but to turn around and, and run back the way he came. He threw himself off the path, and tumbled down the hill and hid, and prepared to make a stand. And they didn't see that he jumped off the path, so they they ran past. Forrest sort of hid until it was dark, and then attempted to climb his way out to the valley, only to find his way blocked. And he ended up in the situation for about a week where he was ending up hiding during the day and attempting to escape out of this valley at night and eventually but with no food he had no choice but to find a friendly village which he did and he asked them for help and they, they took him in I think at great risk to them themselves as well took him in and him and fed him and were able to give him scouts to actually get him out of the area and this became quite a big thing for Forrest the fact that he, he'd he been reported dead back in the UK we so went mourning his loss and then to find out a week later that he'd actually survived and he had this great story to tell which really made a name for himself.
3: In the summer of 1906, a short time after his brush with death that Leonie has just mentioned, Forrest came to uluke it was in this village that Forrest first met Chao Chengzhang and formed an enduring relationship that made a profound difference to not only horticulture, but to also to horticultural and botanical science that still lives on today. In fact, you might say that Chow was likely the most prolific European, and I say this in commas, botanical explorer of the early 20th century. Uh, The term European here is used because his collections ended up in European herbaria where many botanists were cataloguing the world's flora, whilst the plants furnished European gardens. Chao was the expedition's second in command and he hired and paid the collectors and he directed them to where they should go and what they should look for but he additionally went on collecting teams with his special group of six to eight men, and they undertook the most difficult journeys to the mountains of the extreme northwest and beyond. In the 1920s and 30s, Chow and his men continued to work and collect between expeditions, and this was after Forrest had actually returned for breaks to Bamo and also back to Edinburgh. So just a few of the plants that were introduced were, I mean, the first thing I can immediately think of is Primula forestii. Another plant that he collected was Pleione forestii. I hope you're noticing a, a trend here where they're all called after forest, whether he collected them or not. More interesting for Chow and the story of the Nashi people is the discovery of Rhododendron cyna which was hailed through the streets of Edinburgh as a fabulous sensation many specimens were collected during periods of Forrest's absence and here is a case in point during a visit to Bamo, Forrest sent his collectors back to tengi ahead of him and the collecting teams returned through the salween divide with mule loads of seed and this included a specimen of a six to nine meter high rhododendron with huge leaves up to they described it as 76 centimeters in length so this was not collected by forest in person Taking a quick look at the names of taxa described by Forrest, of the 418 records, not a single one commemorates Chow, and yet he named many after Bully, his wife, his children, his friend Lytton, and also a useful customs clerk, Grierson, who had helped his, his specimens return home. So one's left wondering how many of the 285 taxa, given the epithet Forestii, were actually collected
5: directly by George Forrest. Many, certainly, but but all of them. We just don't know. We know that Forrest would have been quite heavily involved in a lot of the plant collecting, but certainly yeah, he could not have done it without these indigenous groups that helped him. I think, what if we lost by naming Chinese plants after Europeans? What do we also lose by using just the Linnaean binomial plant names on labels? This was done to reduce the confusion that can be caused by referring to the plethora of common names that a plant will be used. But by looking at the common name, we can learn a lot about the plant and its uses. And I believe it would be the same across the globe, of course. I mean, why shouldn't it be? So should the labels on plants in our botanic gardens, for example, also include common names? And if the indigenous name for rhododendron, for example, tells us more about where it came from or how it grows or what it was used for or even myths and legends of the region, then wouldn't that be a good thing? I don't know if I would say that Zhao's story has been forgotten about. I don't know if it was ever remembered in the first place. Zhao's story was never published at the time, and although Forrest is a reasonably good self-publicist, I think he had to be in order to get work, but when he published it was usually stories about his adventures in quotation marks for want of a better word, or detailed articles about the plants themselves and the locations they came from. The Indigenous collectors are rarely, if ever, mentioned, and where they are mentioned, it's in Forrest's correspondence which has never been published in full or even catalogued in any detail. So that's something that we are working on rectifying at the moment, both at uh, the Botanic Garden in Edinburgh and at the RHS. So what do we do to rectify some of this injustice that's been done to men like Zhao Chengjiang and his team? Well, we can do what we're doing now. We can talk about the collectors more and we can try not to talk about collectors like Forrest without also talking about the vital support that they got from the Indigenous collectors, including the knowledge that they would have learned from them, about the plants and the landscapes that they traveled through. But most importantly, and something that I confess I've yet to do, is to involve these indigenous groups in telling their own stories. And although the C.P.F. photographs that we show when talking about the Nashi, they can allow us to think that these groups belong in history. And this is not often not the case. The Nashi still populate the land around Lijiang today in, in Yunnan province, along with many of the other ethnic groups that Forrest interacted with. So what stories do they have to tell? How do they view these plant collecting endeavours made on behalf of nurserymen and landowners five to 6,000 miles away from them? I think it would be really fascinating to talk to them and, and find out. So it's really important to tell these stories
3: because we've always thought of it as a, a one-sided approach, but all of those plants in our gardens that we thought were naturally under George Forest, how many thousands of them were actually collected, not by forest, but the tenacious Nashi villagers?
5: For me, I've found this story quite important because it's it's allowed me to examine myself, I suppose, and how I look at the world, and actually take a good look at at how I've viewed forest story. And I've certainly been very guilty of telling it from a very one-sided point of view as well. I have I followed on from everyone else who has told a forest story. So. Looking at the the Indigenous collectors and, and the men and women that help for us, I suppose, yeah, like waking up, but having our eyes opened, it, it's been fascinating to revisit it. And not to reinvent history, but we're reinterpreting it and we're adding to it to tell a more complete story.
2: Thanks, Yvette and Leone. Follow the link in our show notes to read more about Chao Shenzhang and the archive photography from the expeditions. There you can also find links to subscribe to our quarterly magazine, The Plant Review, for lots more fascinating plant stories collected from around the world. Well, that takes us to the end of this week's show. Thanks for listening. I'm going outside now to continue raking up my leaves. There's a lot of them from the various trees around the garden, and rather than gathering them up and making leaf mould, I'm going to rake them under my trees and shrubs to form a thick layer, held in place so they're not blown about by the winds with a layer of garden compost. By July, they'll have disappeared into the soil with the help of those earthworms. If you'd like more information on anything we've covered today, essential earthworms, plant hunters and fantastic fungi, just head to rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. Until next time, it's goodbye from me, Guy Barter.